0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Peter Oborn about his new book, The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. Peter's book is as much a history of U.S., British, and French relations with Islam as it is about a relationship that was almost doomed from the outset, not because of inherent problems with either the essence of the West or the essence of Islam, but because of prejudice, bias, and certainly in the 21st century, politicization and weaponization of religion on both sides of the divide. As we will see, many of the Western and non-Western policy assumptions about Islam echo past fears and prejudices and debates that have fueled a widening gap and Islamophobia. Peter Auburn, welcome to the show. It's a real
2: privilege, James.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. Coming to write this book was a journey given that it involved moving away, for you, moving away from the precepts of a military family and an elite private school education that initially steered you towards conservative media and conservative politics. To be fair, attitudes towards Islam as discussed in your book were not the only thing that persuaded you to take a step back. Ultimately, if I'm not incorrect, you left the Daily Telegraph because of its reporting about HSBC and tax dodging rather than its stance on Islam. So tell us about the journey that you made.
2: I thought it was very important at the uh, start of the book to explain why I was writing it, which is why I dwelt for a little bit on my kind of establishment credentials. <laughs> As you say come from a military family, went to uh, Cambridge University, um, and one of Britain's um, what we call public schools in Britain, actually private schools, of course, and, and very much brought up in the sort of British military uh, political establishment. Um, by the way, I don't think I've been myself on an intellectual journey. I think I'm the same conservative that I always have been. One of the big theses about this book is that it's conservatism which has gone on a journey. If you, uh, not, uh, not, and that exploit, neoconservatism has captured a political and intellectual discourse, first in the United States and now in, in Britain. Uh, and actually is a departure from the sort of conservatism which I believed in and still do. But nevertheless, uh, it got, this journey uh, took me into journalism uh, and in due course to The Spectator, which is the sort of... which w- uh, When Boris Johnson, who's now British Prime Minister, was the editor and I was the political uh, correspondent, and we uh, we had a very sort of liberal... We were a liberal conservative paper. Boris Johnson wasn't the quite sinister creature he has become as British Prime Minister at all. He was a sort of optimistic, jolly, multicultural, highly intelligent and gifted writer. Um, and we um, engage- We saw ourselves as a sort of – I think Boris used this phrase, actually uh, – were a journal of manners more than a journal of politics. Um, and this the, 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 all the terrible things, and I think terrible is becoming the right word in Britain now, um, that all came later. It was a very eclectic paper at the time representing Burkean. If it represented any conservatism, it was Burkean conservatism, a generous conservatism, conservatism which understood that Britishness, embraces all sorts of different identities you can be british and scottish british and, and british and scottish and advocate for scottish independence you can be uh, you know there's a wonderful rich heritage of of immigrants coming for mille- for millennia you know just think of that fabulous generation of of jewish emigres to britain fleeing nazi germany uh, before and after world war 2 and so on so it's it's a very complex identity of Britishness but it gives allows everyone to have a home within it and that of course includes Muslims. That was the kind of uh, uh, that's what that's what I thought that's what the Conservative Party to a very large extent was when I started to report politics uh, but uh, I now move on to why I came to write the book. Uh, after, at the time of 9-11 and then the Iraq, Iraq war and then the uh, atrocity of seven seven in in London, the bombings. Uh, at the same time, there was a sort of almost militant misreporting of of Muslim issues of and of Islam. And I, it was it, it it distorted the truth, and I didn't like it. It was it it was the opposite of wise. It was shrill, and it was an attack on a minority. And that's another reason why I emphasize my conservative background is because I believe in sticking up for minorities I believe in sticking up for the underdog that's a deep thing in Britain for me and part of my what I understand Britishness to be
1: thank you uh, I mean that all of that comes indeed very clearly out in the book and if we start turning to the book perhaps we can start with looking at the history of British and French French approaches towards Islam and its place in society and and in the country. And those approaches were very different. In its colonial days, Britain still envisioned a multicultural empire, while France sought to make its colonies French, nowhere more so than in Algeria. How much of that is the result of very different encounters with Islam from the outset? And how does that impact domestic politics differently until today in
2: Britain and France? It's such a an interesting question. If you look at the uh, French experience, it starts with it starts with Napoleon. Well, you can you can take it, of course, back, and I think it's rather important to do this actually to the victory over the um, Muslims, Muslim armies, at uh, in seventeen thirty two. Charles martel and that is part of the french national myth now taught in schools uh, and indeed gibbon about, says that if if that victory hadn't happened that, that you know that was the call to prayer would be held early in oxford colleges etc but I, I i um in modern in modern times reinforced by that important myth um we have uh, we, we kick off with Napoleon. It's a sort of um, f- a farcical journey in some ways to uh, to Egypt. Um, it was total disaster. But because Napoleon was a master of propaganda, he converted it into a great success. It was a very early uh, enterprise in liberal imperialism. He brought with him all sorts of scholars, scholars, um, uh, and actually, he engaged in a much richer way with the with the local local traditions than uh, the next enterprise, which was eighteen thirty, the invasion of Algeria, which uh, was a terrible event and inaugurated an era of settler colonialism. Um, uh, and really, it was the seizure of land. When the European empires seize land, that opens the way to genocide and ethnic cleansing, uh, as it did in the, uh, Midwest, in the United States with the native Indians, uh, very much of the French, British and Ireland at an earlier point in our history, and um, and the local Muslim population was really offered the choice between surrendering their Muslim identity and becoming French or being treated as barbarians. Now, if you um, and um, there was a sort of awful massacres and um, the emergence of a, of a local settler French settler population. Now, the which uh, had dark consequences for the uh for, for the for the for modern france as well britain starts kicks off in a much rather different way i mean our great queen elizabeth the who i think is even greater than queen elizabeth II, and that's saying an awful lot um she uh was very she needed to create a foreign policy and a trading strategy which cut out catholic europe which was then a existential enemy of hers they were trying to kill her and, um, and impose a Catholic queen her cousin and Mary and the um, uh, and so she formed these early allegiance alliances fascinating alliances flirtatious letters of Suleiman the Magnificent and sort of building up the um, building a, 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 a building up relationships with Muslim powers um, both in North Africa uh, and of, and and in Turkey and beyond you, you find Britain's going to Aleppo at quite an early stage so and this is a trading relationship which carries on defining an awful lot of what Britain was doing even when Britain started to uh, mother that meaning to acquire an empire it didn't uh, didn't seize the land. It, 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 it formed. It, it governed it indirectly or uh, through minorities, often. But it, this meant that um, it, it was perfectly happy, as a general rule. There were exceptions to um, to work with the local communities, with the local uh, the, the, the local religions, not to impose impose themselves. Whereas the French. you know, that you were expected to embrace French values and become French. Um, And that is one of the reasons when Britain surrendered her empire in the uh, second half of the 20th century, as a general rule, uh, it was much more relaxed business. um, uh, And of course, there were terrible things happened. Think of partition in in India. But it was a more, whereas in France, they fought these these, these, these the, the, uh, Algeria fought, fought that terrible war of of independence, which has a massive uh, mm-hmm. la- uh, legacy in in France today. Because the settler population of Algeria, which eventually which fought against independence and then came to France and is sort of the source of Marine Le Pen's far, you know, uh, and her father's, you know, it's it's a source of a lot of the far right in France now. As and likewise the the muslims the muslim population of algeria a lot of whom were obliged to come to france to seek jobs and, and they are the basis of uh, that um uh, also come from algeria and it's and they bring with them their own legacy and awful things have happened on the french mainland uh, as well as in algeria there was that uh, so it's very um it's a very dark legacy. Much more benign in Britain. So the multiculturalism of the British Empire came to Britain at the, after World War Two. Communities, m- not just Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, came to Britain, particularly from the uh, South Asia, and established themselves in this country. And it's an immigration, in my view, has. as a whole, and multiculturalism, has been a great success in Britain.
1: In many ways, that sort of anti-Muslim sentiment, if you wish, was accelerated, obviously, by 9-11, and was sharpened when Islam sort of succeeded communism as the enemy. Um, It also led to a redefinition or a definition of what, or an expansion of what a bad Muslim constitutes. Uh, Interestingly enough, you in in the book also trace the notion of a bad Muslim as going back to Aladdin, the the Middle Eastern folktale figure. Perhaps you can draw that sort of history of the notion of a bad Muslim and tell us in what ways and with what consequences the definition of the bad Muslim expanded post 9-11.
2: Yes, Um, if you you look at the back end of the British um, Empire in India, uh, the, the British governing class did pursue a strategy of divide and rule, and uh, there were g- good Muslims, were those Muslims who, and indeed good, good local, good Hindus too, uh, who accommodated themselves to British rule. Uh, bad ones were those who, um, uh, who, who tried to get rid of the British, and they were, respectively. Um, the, most, the moderates were the good ones and extremists were the bad ones. They were extreme. And I, I, I did a... I, thought, I was so interested in this word extremist because it's now become a, 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 a scare word about Muslims generally that I did a search for it uh, of the use of it in the House of Commons uh, Hansard side of parliamentary debates. The first one Time you came across this uh, term was used by Viscount Hemsley, who tragically died. It, it, talking in I think 1912, he died on the Western Front five or six years, five years later. But he, he he stood up and said extremists, these these women who wanted the vote, which he disapproved of. He said these were extremists who who wanted to have the vote against moderate women who realized their place in society. Now, obviously that. Nowadays, if you said uh, that that women who wanted to vote were extremists, it would be an extremist thing to say that they shouldn't have it. Then it's next use, uh, uh, next use I find of the term extremist about those who wanted Indian independence. And again, I'd say it's moderate, moderate moderate Indians were were those who would like to work in harmony with the Brits, whereas the extremists uh, didn't. Now, what, it's so interesting that we have had, both in the United States and in France, but particularly in Britain, I think, the creation of a new public language to de- to determine and define and categorise uh, Muslims. So the first one is moderate versus extremists. A moderate Muslim in Britain today, according to the official class, and I Devote a lot of time to describing how this new language was created is one who is happy, to, essentially, to renounce his or her Muslim identity, um, a liberal Muslim. Um, whereas an extremist Muslim is one who persists in um, in in uh, in being a Muslim in 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 an external sense. Maybe it's clothes, maybe it's uh, beliefs about. Um, Sticking to the teaching of Islam, and or criticizing uh, British or American uh, foreign policy, um, it's very interesting. Uh, it's it's very interesting the way in which. Sorry, I lost my way. You can just slice that off. I'm just not. Um, uh, yeah. Then we had the creation of another term. It's called nonviolent extremism. And this is a sinister term, invented, uh, as far as I could tell, by think tanks uh, creating a new policy towards Islam in the wake of 9-11. Now, nonviolent extremism, uh, it's clearly a scare word, extremism, uh, but it's somebody who doesn't want to, nonviolent, uh, is um I, they're not committing any crime they're just holding opinions which are held to, uh, which are thought to be unsatisfactory or dangerous and puts you on an escalator towards violence and that process of moving towards violence is called radicalization in the pseudo scientific literature which was produced by think tanks and within whitehall and in government uh, in order to find this journey which allegedly uh, Muslims go on, if they start to uh, you know they, if they start to become rather too religious, pray five times a day, start to sh- t- turn it, show an interest in going to mosques, uh, possibly look at um, adopt get to, get get excited about the cause of the Palestinians, etc. Uh, and so this is a this has emerged and it's frightening to me it's very profoundly un-british and that is forked crime and you can be get punished and isolated not punished you in the sense of going to jail but punished in the sense of cut out of the public square put on lists and so forth for advocating that sort of opinion they also invented and this is something called British values Um, uh, this has become uh, a a major part of the official government analysis of Muslims if you you adopt British values um, you're a good person a good Muslim if you're against British values you're an extremist now Uh, If you look at the definition of British values, it says things like tolerance. You support tolerance, freedom, free speech, etc. And there's nothing actually specifically... First thing to say, there's nothing specifically uh, British about this. I mean, you know, all sorts of people around the world, countries support these things. Uh, And also um, something very un-British about the idea of British values. Nobody has ever... um, uh, you know the, these are all ideas which um I I'll start again um there's something very un-british about the idea of british values because Britain has always been such a generous place you don't it doesn't demand that you think in a certain way in order to be british what you're talking about here is values of coercive liberalism because these are values which you which are, which are incompatible with unorthodox beliefs particularly religious beliefs in a secular society so they are although it doesn't the legislation and the way they're used doesn't say especially that the that that Muslims don't abide by them it's quite clear from the underlying usage of the term that this this is aimed at aimed at Muslims who don't adhere to British values. So it's a word, a term, which has been constructed to, to, to pillory or to isolate a, a significant minority of my our fellow citizens. Um, and I think it's an extremely troubling usage. Um, it's also, ironically, and it, it's, it's so applied in such an invidious way. For instance, the two out of the last three British prime ministers went to a school called Eton, which does not permit women. Now, that is in clear infringement of the tolerance uh, embedded in the concept of British values. But nobody will ever I- I accuse David Cameron or Boris Johnson of being un British, or in that matter, Eton. But if, for Muslims who, Muslim schools which maybe separate boys and girls in different halves of the class, this is a great infringement. Uh, against um the british values so it's, it's it's used in a very selective way in order to um pillory a community and also it then becomes the basis for what we in britain call have it's the prevent strategy which means that if you don't adhere to british values particularly at inside schools you're likely to be picked up and uh Put on a pro, prevent, the so called prevent program, suspected of becoming radical. Uh, and um, many Muslims feel, and I completely sympathize with them, that they are living in something increasingly like a police state.
1: You, in the book, you, you, you just talked about the, the role of think tanks in, in this whole process. And in the book, you uh, describe in some great, great detail two of the of those think tanks. One is Killian, the other is the Policy Exchange. Tell us why they you saw them as being so important.
2: Yeah, first of all, I'll talk about got which is important because in the aftermath of 9-11, intellectuals on both sides of the Atlantic created looked back to the aftermath of world war Two very explicitly and deliberately looked back at the um cold war when we had um created a security architecture to fight communism but also a an intelligence architecture and the cia um wondered how to um how to uh, combat Use soft power to fight communism, and that was by creating a kind of a, a school of a, a kind of approved social de- democrat who was regarded as being uh, acceptable to the United States as against a, a sort of straightforward Soviet support. Um, in order to encourage these sort of soft communists, I call them. Uh, Enormous amount of resources in terms of propaganda and money and intelligence was devoting, devoted to creating a series of um, what appeared to be kind of legitimate civil civil society organizations, but were actually funded by the CIA. Uh, and the same thing happened in Britain. Um, the same kind of organizations were set up. Many writers and intellectuals um, all around the West and indeed the the rest of the world were were implicated in this. I I, I, I have my mixed feelings. It was secret and it involved deception, but equally the Soviet Union was a genuine existential threat to the West. You can't say the same. And so they they went. And so when the Cold War ended, all these organisations were uh, closed down. But when, after 9-11, they were set up, the, the, the um, policy makers in Whitehall set up, re- looked back at what had been done at the start of the Cold War and, and set up similar organisations. Now, Quilliam is one example, quite an important one. Uh, it was um, set, set up by two or three um, former Islamists it's another, Islamist is another manifestation of the new language. It's a sort of scare term, scare word for Muslim, in my view. It doesn't have a lot of other meaning. Former, Muslim, former um, Islamists were sort of sponsored and given money by uh, the Home Office in, in Britain to, uh, to set up this organization, which would preach another square word, well, preach moderate Islam against extremism. Um, And um, part of the way they, and I did some research, part of the way they interpreted their job was to provide, send a list of dangerous extremist Muslims to the Home Office, Muslims who, uh, or Muslim organizations who should be treated with suspicion and put on kind of secret blacklists in effect. This takes us into a sort of McCarthyite world uh, where Muslims who are politically active in a way which is deemed um, unhelpful by the British state suddenly are on lists and denied access to all sorts of things without even knowing about it. Whereas another category of good Muslims who are officially sponsored, given money uh, and given access to the public space, particularly organisations like the British BBC they they find themselves often on very privileged uh, uh forums, forums where they can put out the moderate muslim uh message so you're trying to shape a muslim identity which is approved of by the british state um and um anyway quilliam set eyes on this journey and it wasn't taken that seriously by the general muslim population and um after a while, it sort of white all handlers uh, lost uh, faith in it, uh, and it's I chart its weird and wonderful course to the sort of uh, taking money instead from a, a gender-driven American foundations, uh, which some of which had looked pretty far right to me, uh, and really, um, you know, the the the, organi- the the Quilliam was named after this rather wonderful. Britain, one of many actually, who was enormous, so sympathetic to in the nineteenth century to Islam that he, Quilliam, converted and or reverted, and uh, and uh, he was he he was had very radical views about foreign policy, and he uh, and he played a wonderfully and creative role. Very interesting person, and I think he probably would have been rolling in his grave at some of the things. Which were d- done in his name by Quilliam. The Point really about Quilliam is that a lot of other organisations um, around the place which look pretty much as if they've come from civil society, are spontaneous sort of ha- sort of organisations of or which Habermas would recognise as being part of the public space, which are actually funded by um, by the British government and are not exactly what they seem.
1: A lot of this played out in, or was graphically illustrated, perhaps. Oh, uh, Or before we go into that, um,
2: talk a little bit about policy exchange, if you will. Yeah, Policy exchange is exceptionally interesting because more than any other organization, I think it has been extremely um, uh, successful in creating the... Um, the government, the government view towards Muslims in Britain. Um, I uh, I look. I did. There was a battle inside the Conservative Party uh, at the start of the twenty first century um, about the, uh, how to approach Muslims. On the one hand, there was a rather brilliant, I think, charismatic um, Saeed Avasi uh, who is a young conservative politician at the time, really concerned about issues to do with Palestine. She eventually resi- re- resigned about over the um, British government' the sort of failure to condemn the attack on Gaza in 2014. But she she represented a very optimistic interpretation of what Muslims could do in British life, they're hard working, they're very family minded, they've got very much conservative values, and it's up to the British government to to, to engage. Whereas um, there was an alternative uh, uh, strategy, which essentially were that Islam, or Islamism as it was called, posed an existential threat to the West. Uh, And that, the the, the the kind of architect of that, or the figurehead for it, was another conservative politician, Michael Gove, who uh, is now a senior cabinet minister in the Johnson government. A real, very close to Rupert Murdoch because he worked for the Times newspaper for a long time, and he was the chairman, founding chairman, from memory, of Policy Exchange, which is a think tank, and. I looked at the publications of Policy Exchange um, in the first ten years of this century, and basically they sketch out the uh, the policy. They set out the policies which uh, have defined which have have defined British Muslims for the last twenty years, and that is that Islamism is an existential threat uh, to the West. There are two types of Muslims. There's the Ones who um, the moderates and these uh, then there are the Islamists who must not actually be allowed; in, must be isolated, never embraced, uh, and regarded as subversive. And that is what has happened. Um, and it is int- I, I, um, it is interesting to read how they set out these uh, these papers. Um, they, in particular, what they wanted to do was to reject the um, counter-terrorism strategy which the British had applied in Northern Ireland, which was some, and then British, I think, emerged with great honour from that tragic, um, tragic conflict in Northern Ireland, in which all sides were to blame. And but the British state, I think, managed it as fairly well. And what the, they 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 while well, they accepted all along that violence violence acts must be punished. Uh, they, they didn't. They, they also said that subversion, i.e., belief in Irish independence, was not a crime. It was nothing. That was not a. You know that was not something that the Brits were going to get worried about. So-called subversion. And they want policy exchange wanted the reintroduction. Uh, of the idea of subversion when it came to uh, to Muslims. And that is, I think, not what has happened. If you have views which the state doesn't like, you are now re- you're regarded as somebody who should be investigated. In other words, there is a set of our fellow citizens in this country now who are regarded as subversive simply because of the views which they hold. Now, that is... For me as a British citizen, as as I set out at the beginning of this chat, as a conservative British citizen with an understanding of what it means to be British, this is an outrageous thing to allow to happen. If you think about the way our history, and I think I'm very proud to be British, has been made, you know, you think about the great radicals, uh, you know, in the, at the time of the French Revolution, who had formed the working, the, the, the trade union movement, they were very subversive, they were absolutely mm-hmm. against the state, but we must honour them. Think about Keir Hardie uh, and the other great figures who formed the Labour Party and gave a voice in Parliament to the working classes. Profoundly subversive, but these are people we must honor today and do honor in. likewise, the people who fought for Indian independence—do we honor Gandhi? Yes, absolutely, we honor Gandhi. He was regarded as a total subversive. The women, the, the incredibly brave women who fought for women's liberation, for the vote, and all of that—they were so subversive, but we are, and, and so. But what we have done is put placed on. Uh, we have formed a special category of subversive but honorable public spirited muslims who fight really for better you know fight speak up for their community and their view of how the world should work and i um of course if they people who want to blow us up should be arrested spied on i don't you know it, it's got a bit this it's the job of the state to uh, to protect the security of its citizens more than anything else. But these are people who just have unorthodox views and are treated as subversive. But it really upsets me. It's the major, it's the major moral driver of the book I've written.
0: That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
1: The book is full of fascinating little facts, contradictions, analogies, Um, and I want to touch on two of them. One of them, the first one is, you basically note that the British public didn't display a lot of interest in colonial affairs, certainly in the first part of the 20th century, but its rule over a large number of Muslims did impact debate and policies In Britain itself, and for example, uh, it was one argument that was used against lowering the voting age of women from twenty-one
2: to thirty. Oh yes, I just found Colonel Aplin, isn't it? We discovered him speaking in Parliament. He was—I think he was a fairly um, gruesome character, Colonel Atkin. But he's—he was whether we're wanting to reduce the age of women from thirty to twenty-one. He issued. He'd been a policeman in Borneo, hadn't he? Actually, I guess. he he's getting this thunderous denunciation of the damage this would do to the um, four hundred million Muslims or so who who were under the British Empire. They wouldn't like it a bit. And he gave this as a reason for not. It is interesting, though, isn't it? How that how the women question is emerging there and being framed by a, 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 a an imperialist.
1: I found that absolutely fascinating. I also did the compar- uh, find fascinating the comparison that you drew uh, between the contemporary demonization of the Sharia and the demonization of coffee in the 16th century.
2: Yes, the uh, coffee was yeah, basically, Im- which was of course brought to the West by, um, b- to Britain by Muslims and was, meant, and was meant to cause all sorts of immorality and, uh, and um, of course, f- feed into the demonization of Muslims as sort of irrational, lascivious, and so forth.
1: Let's move for a moment to the United States, which obviously also play, uh, is a is a big part of your book. And perhaps we can start chronologically with the place of Islam and of black Muslim slaves in American slavery. You know, the first, Muslims came to the U.S. about 400 years ago as slaves. And yet until the 9-11 attacks, their influence on U.S. politics and culture was marginal.
2: there were no question that there were millions of Muslim slaves took part on, were part of that dreadful passage from Africa to um, the United States, what is now the United States in the 17th, 18th centuries, and many perished, and their stories are almost entirely unrecorded. But I tell you what I think is important, and I realised is... The importance of the Holy Bible in the construction of the American national consciousness. You know, the Pilgrim Fathers, uh, until the night, uh, they believed really that they were, they were, they, they were, they, they saw themselves, didn't they, as the Jews entering the Promised Land, a- a- and they, they were the elect so, uh, people, and this, this. Affected very deeply, I think, the way they saw the native Indians they they encountered. And this was, this this fed on into the way in which they eventually, when Americans met Muslims, first of all, in their first foreign war against the Barbary pirates in the back end of the 90s, well, just after the uh, War of Independence, uh, when suddenly. um, the American shipping didn't have the protection of the British Navy and they were subject to the Barbary pirates and they had to deal with them Uh, and the Barbary Wars um, have been written up since and were seen at the time uh, as the clash of civilizations between these uh, barbaric savages uh, i.e. Islam uh, and and, and the, the noble Christian Religion, and actually, you can see that same narrative uh, emerge in the way the Barbary Wars were published. When when the neocons really get going, uh, launching a series of wars against Muslims in the at the start of the twentieth, twenty first century, and and then the second after the Barbary Wars, we then have another long period of silence uh, about Muslims (laughs) until. These the Philippine war in the Philippines at the back at 1898. Now, there's a substantial although, um, these this war was basically cre- created by the decaying remnants of the Spanish Empire, uh, which had owned the um, Philippines. But in the southern Philippines, there were the so called Moros, who was a very ancient indigenous, well, indigenous since uh, You know, been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, well before the Spanish. The Moros have come there with Arab traders a thousand years earlier, and they they occupied the Southern Islands. And when the Americans arrived, the the soldiers had come from three decades of fighting the Native Indians in the Midwest. And they'd seen the Native Indians as uh, subhuman, uh, not part of the uh, sort of... The, 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 they weren't. They weren't American citizens. They were just savages to be tr- to be to be killed at uh, will. Uh, treaties entered into them to be broken. Something like it. Ge- James, do we think it was a genocide of the Native Indians? Would you call it that?
1: I, I'm hesitant, but it's just hesitant because I haven't looked at it that closely. I mean, yeah, think, I mean something like. And that. I and I you and know, I, it, also, it, I also, I th- also you know uh, i think there's a distinction between genocide and mass murder
2: or yeah or, or I,
1: mass that's let mass call it mass,
2: murder. Let's
1: call and, it mass and, murder. And, and so i'm 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 very genocide. i'm very uh i well, let me put it differently i think the word genocide is often too liberally used
2: i actually i i completely agree with you so let's say mass murder but lots and lots of barbarous atrocities and certainly, what they call people call ethnic cleansing, either lands were taken from them, and the Americans treated the Moros along those lines. They, they they weren't recognized as being human beings, although one or two of them were brought back as exhibits in uh, to, to to the United States at uh, various fairs. Um, and so that is the, the the relationship between the between the united states and islam or between, and muslims for the first uh, t- you know 200 years or 150 years uh, uh, after that uh, after 1776 um you then do get uh quite a lot of um muslim em- emigration from the uh, collapsing ottoman empire from syria and and Lebanon, uh, and those populations quickly abandoned their Muslim uh, identity. Um, and then I think in the start of the post-war era, you have a quite a post-Second World War era, you have quite a benign relationship between the United States and Islam. It's a very happy period. And this is because the, led by you know, Roosevelt onwards, American presidents, Realise the importance of oil, and so Saudi uh, Arabia suddenly becomes of enormous importance, Uh, and lots uh, and the 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 Americans, the United States, takes over from the Britons as the power in the Middle East. Uh, Lots and lots of uh, Muslims from these countries, Middle Eastern countries, flock to U.S. universities. Uh, among them, of course, Kutub, the great uh, uh, ideologist who inspired – what? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll say that again. Uh, among them, Syed Kutub, who uh, went was picked, I think, probably by the State Department to go to American University. He finally didn't like America. He was repelled by the commercialism, the consumerism he, he saw, and then went back and um, – and uh, was was the was the enemy of Anasa, rotted in a in a cell for ten years, where he was eventually murdered by the Egyptian state, but wrote works which were inspirational or, uh, for um Al-Qaeda. Um but that, that that was a very happy period, that post-war period in terms of the relationships. All the moving, you know, almost the last thing which Roosevelt did. Was to meet Ibn Saud, the ruler of of Saudi Arabia, and and form a new set of alliances. It's in the seventies that nineteen seventies you events in Israel Palestine the and of course the the nineteen seventy nine Iranian Revolution where things start to go very sour indeed. Um, But I think that one of what uh, yes uh, sorry i'm I'm rambling a bit there you'll cut me out a bit yeah what the americans did do though which caused huge problems for the future was set in motion a set of relationships with is islamic states which were fundamentally anti-democratic in nature the uh One of the most terrible events of the early post war period was the CIA MI6 arranged coup d'état against the um, Prime Minister Mossadegh in in Iran because he started to take the um, unpopular view as far as the West was concerned that uh, Iranian oil should actually belong to the Iranians. And that led to the uh, removal of a democratically elected uh, leader of Iran, who believed in all the values which we say we believe in, i.e. Um, <laughs> freedom, parliamentary democracy, rule of law, etc., and replace him with a, uh, a dictator, the Shah of Iran, who ruled for 30 years, Yeah, you know, you, using American arms, secret police, total brutality, and Opened, you know, to and so naturally the Iranian people formed, started to form a um, an unhappy view of the America of, of of the United States, and this that that was part of a series of such relationship where America forms alliances with Saudi, the Gulf states, with with effectively despots uh, who absolutely re- crack down on any sign of. Freedom of speech, democratic activity, public gatherings, and we, we, we in Britain, we in the West, we above all the United States, are on the sides of despotism against democracy across the Middle East, uh, and the legacy of that is utterly terrible, and it has to be. It has to be said that this bears a serious responsibility. This systemic pattern of alliances with dictatorships. For the rise of Al Qaeda, because the logic uh, of people who wanted to be democratic was that we should form parties, we should challenge uh, despotisms democratically, but if you did that, you became an enemy of the state. You also became an enemy of the West. You were deemed to be a terrorist, you were locked up, you were tortured. And Al-Qaeda, and nascent Al-Qaeda, as it emerged, says, look, you're, you're, the West will never tolerate democracy. Don't be ridiculous. And um, that has uh, provided an ideological justification for the terrible things which Al-Qaeda and ISIS have done.
1: All of this, and then particularly 9-11, is brought forward in the United, in the United States, but also elsewhere, a sort of a new whole crop of evangelical and atheist Islamophobic thinkers. Uh, talk to us a little bit about who they are and what impact they have.
2: Yeah. It's when, after 9-11, the United States goes mad. I think that's the only, probably it always was mad. Um, you get a dialogue about Muslims, which is kind of off the scale crazy. Um, it's a huge amount of money to be made by talking absolute nonsense about Islamophobia about about Muslims. You can say whatever you like. You know that, that, that they they want to take over America. That they're um, they 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 are evil, um, they're barbaric, and you will get a mass audience. What made it more dangerous was the several different forces came together to make this argument and were very, very powerfully effective when it came to US convincing US presidents. On the one hand, you had the Christian uh, evangelicals who uh, believed in an approaching end of the world. This has been an enduring Feature of United States history, dating right back (laughs) to the to the founding fathers, but it really got going uh, in the middle of the 19th century. This eschatology, this millenarian eschatology, whereby um, at some point uh, Christ comes back or the Messiah, and then you get the Antichrist, and then you get Armageddon somewhere in the in the Middle East. And out of all this horror. Uh, the Christians survive. The Jewish people have a sort of useful role in because uh, they have to, according to the, this the eschatology, go back to Israel. But their long-term future, <laughs> according to this demented Christian eschatology, is absolutely hopeless. That they 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 are doomed to. But the, the elect get saved after the great tribulation and, and suffering. This the, the, there's a series of Total nutcases are still going strong, unfortunately, in the United States, who have been very influential in persuading US presidents to talk their language. Indeed, um, George W. Bush uh, referenced them quite a lot, but actually it's not that much of a surprise. I discovered he had an ancestor somewhere in the mid-19th century who was also called... George W. Bush, George Bush and all, and actually the direct ancestor of two presidents who who, who came up with this kind of nonsense. He, he, total anti-Semite. He wanted the Jews to go to Israel, not because he liked the Jews, he didn't, but he wanted them out of America. But they, uh, uh, but and also because that, in order to do that, that, the effect of that, according to the demented thinking which he promoted, uh, was to enable the end times to come that much quicker. So you have this. Muslims have of course in that uh, that plan for the world's future and tens of millions of Americans believe it uh, had no role at all apart from they were often associated with the antichrist then you get the atheists i think um uh, uh, get the anti atheists were driven uh, the new atheism um i'm going to read out a few passages it's they so um, from very really rather respectable uh, public figures who sort of echo Pope Urban II at the Council of Clermont, preaching the uh, First Crusade in, uh, in, in at, the back, at the end of the 11th century. Uh, but it's the same stuff. And there's a man called Sam Harris. I believe he's still. Uh, let me find. Let me find uh, Mr. Sam. Sam Harris. Um, uh, the end of faith. Now, I don't, It's important to yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's important to say about atheists like Sam Harris or his uh, sort of ally, the British public intellectual uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, that um, I think they they do dislike all religions. It isn't just Muslims who they was like they think that christianity is a disaster Uh, but i think that the environment of the time enfranchised them to um go after muslims in particular so look look about this uh we it is this is sam harris quite a respectable person coming up with stuff like this it is time we admitted that we are not at war with terrorism we are at war with islam this is not to say we are at war with all Muslims, but we are absolutely at war with a vision of life that is prescribed to all Muslims in the Quran, uh, and so on and so forth. It's but any Muslim who, who all Muslims revere the Quran, see it as the word of God. So he was being intellectually dishonest. It's an attack. Um on a community, there were a there were and there were a series of moral panics of much the most uh, no, one of the most notable because so many senior politicians joined into it, it was about the building of a alleged building of a mosque um, near the site of the twin towers. A form of collective hysteria uh, captured the United States in the aftermath of nine eleven, and it became. Almost impossible uh, to be a Muslim, I think, in those circumstances. Or if you did, if you were, you had to keep quiet about it. It's why I really admire certain uh, Muslims who kept their head. Mehdi Hassan, uh, uh, who's a Briton who now is an American citizen, has been remarkable in that way. But American mainstream television became a sort of hunting ground. To excoriate, to intimidate, to mock um, Muslims in general, and uh, this uh, and it formed the basis, of course, for that awful presidential campaign from President Trump in two thousand and sixteen, and the and the ban on Muslims from coming into the United States. It was all nonsense, but it was so damaging. And I do admire Muslims who have stayed there, and, of course, the decent Americans who saw through all of this stuff. Don Esposito, the professor at Georgetown University, is another person I think has spoken, as you have, James. Kind of talked sense here and be, be been a redress, but you've been minority voices. And because you have often are in academia, you're sort of... You know, you're, you're put into they would they say that, wouldn't they category. You're members of the liberal elite. Right.
1: <laughs> Peter, unfortunately, the clock is ticking. I usually tell people we could go on for another hour, but I'll tell you that we could easily go on for another two hours. Unfortunately, time is running out. However, before I let you go, tell us what you are working on now and what your next project will be.
2: Um, James, I feel I can't leave this project. There are so many things which I have discovered in the course of researching a book. As you know, when you write a book, you it's, it's an amazing journey, isn't it? And once you've written it, there's all sorts of things you then discover which ought to be in the book. And so I'm not going to leave... The, yeah, I, I, and um, I'm going to go on looking into the... Um, the think tanks which have um created this warped view of islam i'm going to have a series of articles planned about muslim charities which have done wonderful work but have been smeared as being somehow unhel uh, you know violent when they aren't and uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to be a Muslim and live in public life, I, I, anything like a public life in Britain, and probably right across the West. In France, the same thing is, the same attack is going on. But all it is, is a very simple thing. And actually, this is, again, why I mention my, I want to say this to you. I was very lucky to have a wonderful grandfather. And. Um, War hero, he he was at he was one of the last hours at Dunkirk in 1940, and he was the, on day two uh, of D Day. And uh, above my desk, when I wrote this book, I went and got the citation for his distinct DSO, Distinguished Service Order. It's a very and he never talked about it when he was alive. He just said it wasn't for me anyway. It was from the men, and I got hold of it. It's pretty amazing how he was. He was an engineer. He built bridges across when British Army is going across Europe he'd go ahead and build the bridge. And obviously you're building that bridge, aren't you? You're going out in boats under small arms bar. That's what it said. Accurate German small arms bar. But he was a very soft spoken man. Never talked about any of that. But I except that one thing he he the reason we fought World War Two was to fight fascism. We were there for the underdog. So that they could live free lives, whether it was the the Jews who were exterminated under the Nazis or the small nations which were obliterated. We were fighting that war for decency. And I like to think that when I wrote this book, I was honouring my grandfather and what he fought for in World War II.
1: Peter, there's clearly a lot of you in this book and a lot of passion as you go forward. I, for one, certainly look forward to continue reading you. In the meantime, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. All the best, and take care.
2: It's a real privilege uh, of, <laughs> to come on your show, James. I, I'm a, I I love reading your book about football, by the way, in the Middle East. I learned so much from that, because I mean, it's a real sports history is such a fascinating subject and you learn so much through sport about i read a book about basil de Oliveira the black cricketer who was not allowed to play cricket well not allowed to play first class cricket in the inside in apartheid south africa and his amazing journey to right. come to england you yeah, know sports uh, he, is a it's phenomenal prism